are on episode five of Always Be Connecting. And we thought we would change the pace and the energy a little bit because the first four episodes that we've recorded, we have been asking our guests to tell us who they were at school. And I thought it'd be like a kitsch, cute little way to connect with our guests and find out who they are in our mind's eye. I have since watched um, a few programs where uh, they talk about masks, where you have, when you meet somebody new, you have a mask for yourself and you have a mask for them. And they also have a mask for themselves and a mask for you. And I started thinking that maybe this question of asking who they were at school was the wrong question. So I had a a look online. I was like, I need to talk to somebody about this. I need to like figure some things out. And I had a look online, who was a good voice in Sydney, preferably, to talk about this and see why this wasn't great or could be great or could be tweaked. Uh, And the voice that I found online was Aubrey Blanche Seriano. Thank you so much for joining us. And you joined us at really short notice, so I really appreciate you coming by and talking to us because you are the VP of Equitable Operations at Culture Amp. Mm -hmm. So what is that? And who are Culture Amp? Yeah, so um, one, thank you so much for having me. I'm always really excited to talk about these topics. So Culture Amp is an employee experience and insights platform. Um, So we provide a suite of products um, to businesses, especially, you know, leaders of scale and HR teams to help them really drive performance for their employees. So everything from engagement surveys, performance reviews, one-on-one templates, goal setting and tracking. Um, we really try to be the engine that that helps people perform at work. Um, my job um, as the VP of Equitable Operations is that I lead um, a big portion of our employee experience work. So my team looks after people operations, so mobility, systems, policies, processes, diversity, equity, and inclusion, sustainability, as well as our corporate foundation. So if it feels good or it drives employee experience, that's us. And it was serendipitous because yesterday I was watching a masterclass, which is a subscription to watch very accomplished people talk about how they do well in their lives. And I was watching one with Ava DuVernay. And um, she was taught, she gave an example of she was making a film and she had a choreographer who was doing the dance and he started visualizing the shots and uh, talking about these shots. And uh, she said that she could have been put off by it and could have shut it down because she's a director. She calls the shots, literally. But by having an inclusion of different voices and different perspectives and, and allowing those people to speak about them, she got shots that she would never have dreamed of of herself. So, like, it was. I thought it was a really great example of how you can speak to power, you can speak to the director, and not be afraid and feel included, and not to worry too much about the hierarchy. Is is that 
part of your work is to sort of be like the sort of diversity is is having the people but the inclusion part is is the action yeah absolutely so i always tell people i don't actually care about diversity which is a very spicy thing to say for someone who leads a dei department but i really think about inclusion and equity so what you're talking about is inclusion this idea that people feel seen for who they are and the unique thing that they bring to a community that matters to them but also that their voices are valued for what they bring to the table. And so that I think requires bravery on behalf of a person, but it also requires humility on the part of a leader, right? Your example, um, Ava DuVernay uh, didn't think that she had all the perfect answers and that opened her up to the opportunity to get a great idea from someone else and incorporate that to create a better product. The other side of the coin that my team thinks about is equity. And equity is really about the process of considering the historical and present day barriers that might exist for someone and building the kind of environment and supports that allows them to achieve inclusion. And one of the things um, uh, I usually say pretty spicy things and then I follow it up and try to be reasonable is the reason that I don't care about diversity is because I fundamentally believe that if you start with focus on equity, so that gets everybody onto a level playing field and then they feel included diversity is actually a natural outcome of that and so by not focusing on diversity you can actually achieve it by focusing on those more foundational concepts oh how funny so it's the reverse yeah because everyone thinks that dei is the order it is not. And um, the joke I always tell is people tend to think it's diversity, then inclusion, and then equity, which spells die for a reason. Okay. <laughs> and so I Why? really... Um, and the reason is because when you start with diversity, first, all you're really talking about is counting heads. But when yes, yes. you yeah. get really focused on just achieving the numbers, you, one, might result in doing some tokenizing things that just aren't good right? They're bad practices. But I also think that you don't actually create sustainable change. So a lot of companies focus on diversity. And what that means is they start recruiting a lot of people from marginalized backgrounds. But the fact is, that's actually in my opinion, a really unethical thing to do. Because if you haven't built a company culture that is actually going to treat them well, You are setting those people up to be harmed in your environment. And so by focusing on equity first, you create an environment where lots of different types of people can thrive, and then you bring them into that supportive environment. And so that's more sustainable because those people that you just hired aren't going to quit really quickly. But I also think it's more ethical because you're not setting someone up to be put into a bad situation for them. So what are some examples of... of hiring diverse but not having the system to support them yeah so um as an example is i see this a lot of times um in 2020 right a lot of companies proclaimed black lives matter and they started recruiting more um, black people into their or people of the african diaspora into their companies but they weren't actually auditing their performance pay and promotion processes to make sure that people were treated well in terms of their career journeys at those companies and so what you saw is that or they were unwilling to fire racist leaders and so what that means is you're bringing someone into an environment where they're being treated poorly 
And I can tell you there's thousands of companies that have anti-discrimination policies on the books that Mm. they're unwilling to enforce against people who make their revenue numbers. Right. And so that would be one example of where I would say companies need to be really clear. And what I'm not talking about is if someone makes a mistake. Right. I'm not saying that we should terminate someone for that. But the but if someone does make a mistake, what is the plan to make sure they don't repeat that mistake in the future? Is it coaching? Is it training? Is it also an accountability system? Is it a three fit? 60 feedback survey. Um, So I think that's it, is you need to build auditing capabilities internally. You need to train employees on the expectations of working and successfully working with people different from them. And then you need to make sure that you're building safety structures and community and connection experiences for people who might not see many people that look like them at work. Um, because we know that's a really important driver of engagement, retention, and performance. So um, what, what are some things to do to to include the in, in, to create inclusivity? Yeah, so I'll talk about like inclusive meetings because I think, you know, regardless of your level, your seniority, your specialty, you're probably going to a meeting <laughs> if you work. Yeah. And so one of the patterns that we that research shows us we tend to see is that women, um, and especially women of color, tend to be interrupted more okay. when speaking in meetings. And they also tend to have their ideas co-opted. And yeah. so one, why don't you create a cultural norm that there are no interruptions? Everybody gets their turn to speak and empowers everyone in the room to interrupt that pattern if it happens. Um, The other thing is being really thoughtful and raising awareness about that pattern of idea co-optation. And the way I tend to see that happening is not as often malicious, but let's say we have a woman of color who's put an idea forward. The room might say, hmm, whatever, or move on. And then John in the corner says basically the same thing. And everyone goes, John, what a great idea. Like, think about how demoralizing that would be for you Mm. if that happened. And so even someone knowing that that pattern tends to exist and how powerful would it be if you said, John, thank you so much for building on Sarah's original point. I really feel like we're getting consensus on this, right? Mm. So it doesn't need to be about calling someone out or shaming someone, but just watching for those common exclusions exclusionary dynamics and building your own toolkit of ways to say, oh, I could do that. Or um, I really love um, if you have a very hierarchical meeting and you're trying to brainstorm, let the junior team member go first. Why? Because people are probably going to agree with the boss. So make the boss go last. And similar to the example you brought in, you're probably going to get more better ideas because just because you're the boss doesn't mean you have all the good ideas. Yeah. Um, So you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. How do businesses understand that these red red flags exist in their business? Because maybe lots of people are happy with John's contribution and they don't see... Sarah's response to being 
co-opted in that way? Yeah, I think it comes down to seeing inclusionary behaviors, cultural humility, curiosity, growth mindset as yeah. basic business competencies, right? So like you would never accept that a leader of your company didn't know how to manage a budget, right? It wouldn't be an excuse to say, oh, well, I've never managed a budget before. I don't know how to do that. And so why do we accept that excuse for inclusion? I don't expect everybody to be an expert all at once, but I do expect everyone to be willing to learn and grow. And so I think that's what it is, is the business needs to set the expectation that, you know, build it into your leadership framework, build it into your performance management processes, that showing up as an inclusive teammate is a basic expectation of your work performance here. Mm -hmm. And then also provide resources and opportunities for people to grow those skills. Because at the end of the day, I'll be honest, this is not rocket science. Not yeah. like not being an asshole isn't actually that hard. And not to say that, you know, I'm an expert in this space. I still mess up. Yeah. You know, and I'm happy to tell you about some of those stories and kind of the way I tried to gracefully recover. But I think that's also a really important skill to develop here is constant curiosity and the ability to gracefully recover when you mess up, because I can tell you, you will. And it's yeah. going to be OK, but you need to be willing to be humble when that happens and make repair where necessary. Because it's funny, there's a lot of jargon in the DEI. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so it does like it it does seem a bit uh is it junky? Is it is it relevant? Like Yeah. What are they talking about? And I think um I think there's a, a particular dynamic there where because so many people have not taken these concepts seriously, a lot of practitioners have wanted to put fancy language around it to make it seem more legitimate. But I think the problem is in many ways that's made it more inaccessible to yeah. people. And what I found is when I, a lot of times, like one of the criticisms that's lobbed at this work is they go, oh, well, I don't want to be politically correct. And I go, you know, do you want to be kind to other people? And someone's like, well, yeah, of course I do. And I go, and do you always know how someone else wants to be treated? We say no. And I go, so really what we're just trying to do is I believe you're a good person and I believe you want to treat people well, but I also believe that you might need some guidance about how to do that with someone that you're less familiar with. Mm. And most people will go, that sounds pretty reasonable. I go, that's inclusive leadership. And they go, oh, that doesn't sound very political. That doesn't sound very divisive. And I'm like, no, it's not. It doesn't have to be. And so I think it's really important to have real conversations with people about what we're actually asking, because it's easy for things to get polarized when you throw around all of these like fancy words, when at the end of the day, it's like, we want people to be treated fairly and we want to treat each other well. And, yeah. then, and then we can talk about the mechanics of that. But like, I don't actually have a lot of trouble getting people on board with those ideas. I mean, there's always going to be the cadre of detractors, but I mostly don't worry about them. Yeah. Um, what are results of not being aware, not putting in actions? Yeah, so the research is pretty clear, and it, which is if people are treated poorly at work, they're not going to stay. Right. And and I hate to speak in like purely capitalistic terms because like I think people should do the right thing for the right reasons. But also, hey, 
if we make money and that's your motivation as long as we're all on the same page about what we're doing but the fact is that people who are not treated well at work whether they're discriminated against or simply treated exclusively are less likely to stay at your company and that means you're going to bear the cost of replacing them you're probably going to pay more for their replacement and you're losing all of the institutional knowledge that they have But I also think for global businesses or even just businesses that are serving a broad diversity of people, you know, um, how are you supposed to know what your customers want if you don't have anything in common with your customers, right? Um, Like there was this meme on the internet I saw where it's a group of like male ad execs like talking about selling makeup. And it's like, what the hell do you know about that? (laughs) Why do you think you're qualified to do that job um, at the highest level of, of excellence? And so I think for me, it's about businesses being able to actually serve their core purpose. Mm. You have a better talent strategy. And I think right now we're seeing DEI budgets cut left and right. And I will tell you, I think it is one of the stupidest business decisions you can make because of investing in DEI is one of the most cost effective employee retention strategies that exists. Yeah. Every dollar that you spend on DEI is going to save you hundreds of dollars in retention. And so that's the other thing is to be honest, my fundamental belief, having worked at some of you know the world's most successful businesses, is if you are a leader and you don't already believe in the value of DEI, you are fundamentally unqualified to lead in 2024. And then, so the benefits of DEI on a personal level is mental health and mental happiness well-being um focus and productivity um i think just human dignity right i I know that that sounds um maybe extreme to some people but you know there are people in this world who have never been treated well or with respect at work yes right and a lot of that will come down to the demographics or the identities that they showed up in the world with or picked up as a result of their experiences. And so one of the things I really appreciate about working at CultureAmp is certainly our leaders, they know the business case for diversity, like they've heard it, they've read it. But for us, I think the reason we've been able to be successful at making all of this progress is because our leaders, the reason that my team's work is funded is because, and you can ask the CEO, you know, he says, this is the kind of business I want to run. I want to be the kind of place where people are treated well and they can grow their careers. And I don't mean just a specific subset of people. I mean, everyone who comes here. And so it's really easy to say, well, hey, we're seeing this pain point in our culture. We want to address it in this way to get support for that. And I think it's really important to understand that while these issues can feel complicated, can feel really political, at a basic level, they're actually not that complicated. It's just about having really high quality talent and culture processes. That's interesting because that kind of goes back to what I watched with Ava DuVernay's masterclass um, last night, is that um, she's currently adapting a book Mm-hmm. to a movie and the book is called cast the origins of discontent by isabel wilkinson and i got this real brief 
uh, summary of what that means, and that is caste is the granting or withholding of respect, status, honour, attention, privileges, resources, benefit of the doubt and human kindness to someone on the basis of their perceived rank or standing in the hierarchy. And uh, Isabel Wilkinson's book talks about uh, uh, American uh, racism, um, the Indian caste system, which is, is quite profound, where at the bottom of it you have a, a, a type of people called the Dalits and they're the ones that sweep up and they literally have to sweep up after their shadow because their shadow is dirty. Um, and then to sort of bring back another of Ava's quotes is that uh, the greatest ideas are in the hearts and minds of people who don't feel empowered to speak up. So like the, the there's such an incredible resource in the, the people, the Dalits of India that has been pushed down and uh, suppressed. But everybody's got a spark in them. Everyone's got a joy about them that can be can have economic value. It can have uh, story value. It can have art value. Like, um, so like there's there's two parts of it as is working as a business but then all of us as people as well like how do we talk to one another bring each other in and and appreciate people better are there are there some like basics towards that yeah i mean i think it really starts like we talk about in the context of businesses but so often businesses inherit the like value systems of the societies that they're embedded in. And for me, I think it comes down to individuals having a particular set of values and perspectives. And I think you've articulated a really important one really beautifully, which is this idea that in order for you to care about equity and inclusion, it has to be grounded in a one fundamental belief that everyone in their perspective has value and is worthy of dignity and good treatment. And I think it's important to note that not everybody believes that. Right, These systems of hierarchy would not exist if everyone believed that. But I think that's the fundamental core value we need to start with. And then I think the question is, and how would I act if I believe that was true and I wanted to live that value? Mm. And so I think that there are a couple of practices that I've personally used to try to bring that value to life in my own life. And one is I spend a lot of time trying to encounter perspectives outside of my own and especially perspectives that are more marginalized than my own. So um, before uh, Twitter became a hellscape, um, I loved social media for this because it was brilliant people sharing their experiences of everything from getting a coffee to deep thoughts on structural oppression. And I could curate my social media feed to show me things that I would never be exposed to in, you know, the regular workings of my day to day life. Um, and I did that really intentionally. And you and I talked about bias. And I found that social media was actually one of my best bias busting tools ever. Hmm. So um, for folks who aren't kind of familiar with the concept, there is both very conscious and unconscious bias. And unconscious bias tends to come from the automatic associations that our brain makes based on kind of the information soup 
that we've been exposed to our whole lives. And one of the things I um, I did an experiment um, with myself where I very intentionally filled my whole Twitter feed with um, very uh, accomplished um, black people because I made the assumption that my brain had taken in a lot of biases about black people, about them being um you know, high rates of criminality, low levels of intelligence that consciously I know just aren't true. They just don't have a basis in fact. So what I did was I basically created an information environment that countered what the world told me. And so that, for example, is a way that I live that value is I intentionally curate my information environment to fight against what I'm inheriting from the world so that my unconscious associations begin to be closer to reality, right? Which my brain would start to say, everyone can be an expert. Mm. But it also means that the next time someone asks me to recommend an expert on X, I'm more likely to recommend someone that other people might not be, right? Yeah, and so, so it's about exposure. It's about exposure, and um, it doesn't have to be complicated. So many people have done incredible work in this space. Like I was just Googling um, the other week, like um, black women in AI because I wanted to learn more about artificial intelligence. Um, and there are some incredible folks on that list that you know, the New York Times put together a compilation of um, like the innovators and the pioneers of AI, and it was all white dudes. And I'm sorry, you can't tell me that only white men contributed to artificial intelligence. You so what's, just... what's doing that? The algorithm or just the bias of us all? Pushing these people Absolutely. up onto a pedestal? Human bias and individuals not holding themselves accountable for mitigating that bias. I don't think that we should necessarily be moralistic about what unconscious biases people have. That's not something they can control. But you can absolutely control consciously assessing your decisions and making different ones if that bias is appearing. Yeah. And so from my perspective, if you're making, you know, in the case of the New York Times, this list of innovators in AI, and you have a list of all white people, and you don't check yourself and go, do I think I missed something? That's unconscionable. You're erasing the contributions of entire groups of people, but you're also perpetuating systemic racism. And whether you meant to or not, you should be accountable for what the impact of that is. So a lot of people talk about the best person for the job. <laughs> Doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> so there's two strands for it. Like one is you're allowing yourself to maybe enter that bias. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't want to to take a side on it too much. But then the, if if we are to talk about the other side. You, you do need somebody who's good for the job. You do need someone who's able. You can't have just a token uh, diversity to, to you know, oh, I've got all these candidates, but I need someone on, on my team who's diverse. That's the one mm -hmm. I'm going to go for. Maybe they, they, they're not good for the job or maybe they're, they're, is, they're not ready or... They mm -hmm. need some work. So, like, but then obviously if, when we talk about equity as well, there's plenty of people who aren't ready for the opportunity because they have 
less equity mm-hmm. in in the industries that they they serve. So there's a lot there yeah. to try and navigate. How yeah. how do hiring managers, people and culture managers start to tear that apart? Yeah, so I think it comes down to a mindset. So I always find it really interesting that the dichotomy or like the problem that's brought up is like, well, we have a really qualified white man and we have a underrepresented person who could be a token when like research tells us like statistics actually tell us that the more likely thing to happen is that the unqualified white man gets hired because he's a white man and the overqualified marginalized person doesn't get hired because of their demographics so i always like flip the script and i go the fact that you're placing diversity and quality as a dichotomy is inherently a racist idea Because you're assuming that the most qualified person isn't also the person who brings demographic diversity. When in fact, I will just tell you, I've hired lots of people. I have been involved in the hiring of many more is because of the way systems of exclusion work. If someone has made it to your interview and they come from a marginalized background, the likelihood that they are more qualified is extremely high. Yeah, okay. Right. So like the math of it, right? Think about it. Like mm. if if let's say person A who is a white woman yeah. had to jump three hurdles to get to that interview and person B is a black woman, she's had to jump six hurdles to show the same level of qualification. Yeah. And so if I'm looking at hiring the best, which I think is a fake concept, would I rather hire someone who's jumped over three hurdles or six hurdles? Well, that means if you've made it over twice as many challenges, you probably have more skills in your toolkit. And so I actually making a better decision by hiring that person who's gone the furthest. And my point is not to say that someone from a majority group is never the most qualified. Certainly, sometimes they are. It would be silly to think that that wasn't true. But I think it's really, really important to both acknowledge that our social script tends to be a lie that covers up the reality of discrimination. But also the way I as a hiring manager think about it is that you're like, I have never hired someone for their demographics, but I do value someone's perspective and expertise as a result of their lived experience as a part of their job. Mm. So for example, I, it was very important to me when I hired a senior manager to work on my team who was going to be in charge of our accommodations and adjustment process and our disability inclusion program. I didn't say my hire has to be disabled. That would be, I mean, illegal, but also probably inappropriate. But what I did make a requirement of is has has significant experience of working with or navigating disability and an understanding of how that impacts someone's experience at work. Now, a non-disabled person might be able to meet that qualification, right? They may have done study, they may have worked with people, but the likelihood that a disabled person has more expertise in that domain is higher. Right. In the same way that if I'm hiring a software developer, someone who studied software development is more likely to have the skills than someone who hasn't. And so I think that's a part of it is we need to get away from the idea that we're choosing between demographics and the best person. And then also we need to make sure that as a hiring leader, we're valuing the lived experience and the skills that come from that in a really significant way. Hmm. 
Because there's... What do you look at then? Because there's intersectionality. Like, you can't assume that somebody from a, 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 an underrepresented demographic has had the most hurdles to to jump through do you do you look at the data do you look at the story how do you how do you how do you visualize that yeah so i ask specific questions like of what i want to know so um i might just ask someone tell me about a barrier that you've experienced in achieving x and how did you address that now someone you know, someone from a multiply marginalized background might tell me a story that had to do with their identity, but they might not. I'm not making an assumption. I'm creating space for them to share that if that feels relevant and comfortable yeah. to them. But what I really want to assess is how do you cope with challenge? And anyone could have a compelling answer to that question. And I know what I'm looking for. I'm looking for ingenuity. I'm looking for persistence. I might be looking for someone to ask for help when, you know, that's what they need. Mm. And so that's not determined by demographics, but someone from a particular background that's faced more challenge might have a more compelling answer to that question. And interestingly, a lot of people with um, challenges in their past may feel shame about that, where it is um, often a big plus to have something that has held you back and how you've overcome that. So how do, how can businesses and allow people to to feel secure in their own story and what's happened to them and, and the barriers that they faced. Yeah, I think there's a couple of different like ways to do that. And I think one is as leaders, learning how to thoughtfully share your own challenges. And I think there's a, a line between sharing your challenges and trauma dumping Um, I think it's important to call that out. But, you know, for example, I have found that as a leader, sometimes if I have someone who's a little hesitant, I might share a challenge that I've had, right, or a way that I've struggled. And what that does is it gives permission for other people to talk about it. But I think it's also important, you know, um, as an example, I often talk about um, like anti-racism is a big part of the work that I do. And I'm Latina. So I'm from a mart and I'm also, you know, mixed race. Um, So I talk about the way that I've experienced racism as a minoritized person. But I also balance that perspective by saying, but I'm also white assumed. So the things that I've experienced are nowhere near as extreme as someone who's darker than me, right? Like I get shielded from a lot because of the way I look. Mm. And so by sharing that experience openly of both saying like, here's a thing that was hard, but also I'm kind of self-aware, I try to be about my privilege, that can create space for someone to say, and here's how I've struggled and either here's how I've overcome it or here's the support I need from you. Right. Because I think that's the other thing is as a leader, you always say, hey, I don't know if you're experiencing this, but if you are, I want you to know that I'm here on your team to help you with it. 
right? Because asking for help can be wildly difficult. And so making sure that if you're in a position of power or privilege that you proactively offer that specific support, I think can be really, really powerful. And on the sort of flip of that vulnerability, when I was reading about you earlier, there was a a term called brilliant jerks. (laughs) Do you want to run us past that term? Yeah, so it kind of goes back to something that I was talking about earlier, which is this idea of like companies are unwilling to punish, sanction, or terminate people if they're like brilliant or they drive a lot of revenue, for example. And I think the like one, there are people who are brilliant who aren't assholes in the world. So you don't need to employ the ones who don't play nicely with others. And I think for me, I think it's important that you build systems and structures in place that disincentivize that stuff. So I think there's a few ways that you do that. So one, in your performance process, people should be assessed not only on like what did they deliver technically or from a business perspective, but how did they deliver that in terms of their collaboration with others. But I also think you can do a lot of work in the way that you brand and sort of sell your company. So Culture Amp, um, we really care about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we are very public about those commitments. We talk about our investments. We talk about what we haven't done yeah. well. We talk about what we've achieved. And the value of that is not only we want to inspire other companies, but the average person who really hates diversity, equity, inclusion probably is not going to apply to Culture Ramp. But the, those values are important because that's what Culture Amp has found to be a success driver mm-hmm. in their own work. Absolutely. So that's what they share. Yeah, And absolutely. that's what they invest in. Absolutely. And so I think, and part of that is, you know, uh, choosing to work at a company, and I think Gen Z does this better than, than I think some of us older generations, but people are more and more wanting to work at companies that align with their values. And so I think there's a very strategic talent argument to being clear about what your values and priorities are. And you know what? That means you are going to alienate some people. But make sure you're alienating the ones you mean to. Because um, uh, I'm not saying this right probably, but not to mansplain what you've said, because Simon Sinek has got mm-hmm. a, a different way of, of, of saying that in that you've got high performance and you've got high trust. Mm-hmm. And if you have low trust, high performance, that's your brilliant jerk. Yep. And um, so the the trust, the vulnerability, the being able to speak, the providing your value, these are the drivers to success. And like the high performance can come later. Yeah. Or you know, like it's a manager's job to get those people to high performance in some in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a, a really brilliant connection. And what if you changed your mindset from asking the question, is this person a high performer? To what does this person require to achieve their potential? Yeah. So I, as a manager, fundamentally believe that every person is capable of high performance. But 
it's up to me as a manager to figure out what's motivating and what's supportive to them such that they can achieve that. And so I think that's in some ways both simple and radical is to say, I believe the environment is more a determinant of someone's achievement than anything. And so how do you build the right container? And that might be different containers for different people. Um, And I think that's the fun of management. But I think for some people who want a one size fits all model, like you're ultimately probably not going to be super successful. Yeah. So going back to my who were you at school question, like there's flaws in that I I see. Like what's, what's your reaction to it? And like, what do you think I'm doing in that moment? So I totally get that in some ways it's a way to connect back to like the core essence of a person. Um, but I can see on the other side of the coin that it can ask people to fit themselves into some kind of stereotypical or archetypal box. Um, my answer is I was the absolute nerd, like yeah. bookworm, push my glasses up. Um, I was really proud of that, but I was definitely the bookish one. So I, the way I like to ask questions about that, because I think the spirit of what you're asking is amazing, is I like to create broader questions that let people share what they want to. So one of my favorite questions is what's your superpower? Yeah. Right. Which may be related to work. It may value. Right. But anyone can share anything they're really proud of. And I love that question because people will light up when they answer it. And in an interview, the other thing I ask is what's something that most people do better than you? Okay. Right. Because one, we all have a zone of incompetence, myself very much included. You can just ask my spouse. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I think that those questions are broad enough that people can share at the level that's comfortable to them. So like for me, I would be like driving. I'm not a good driver. Um, That's why I don't drive in Sydney. Um, Whereas someone might be sharing something much more personal if that's in their zone of of safety or comfort. And so I like to ask questions like that, but I think it gets at the same spirit of what you're trying to get at, which is you want to know something personal about someone and to humanize them. Yeah. Um, Or like, um, uh, I like to ask people, what's your favorite thing about yourself? Yeah. Right. Um, and that might share something that's not always apparent in a bio or on LinkedIn, but that's something where you can humanize and bring color to someone without assuming or kind of poking too deep if if they don't want to yeah. share. Yeah, because f- funnily enough, the four people that we've asked so far, they all do, I think all of them said the word nerd. And like, <laughs> the, you know, like there was a very much how you perceive yourself angle to it where they kind of like... Mm-hmm a little bit you know they were like oh I was a bit scrawny or I was a nerd or I just did my little jobs uh, uh, yeah and there was there was kind of no there, there wasn't enough pride or exuberance yeah. and I, yeah. I think everyone's got stories of their school days where mm-hmm. they don't feel yeah, yeah like the red foo of the group but um I love the superpower idea because because people that brings a confidence back into people of of wanting to share like oh i'm really good at sports or like uh accountability or 
I, I I really enjoy people and like and finding out more about them and, and things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes back to that idea that like you, I probably believe everybody has a superpower. What's your superpower? My superpower, I think, is that I am capable of learning just about anything about anyone and greeting them with complete non-judgment. Yeah. Um, like I am so curious and fascinated by people and I feel so honored to know things about them yeah. um, that like you can tell me the wildest stuff and I'll be like, great. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, and so I think that I hope that that makes people feel like safe and comfortable with me um, because I find that that's how I get the information about how I can best relate to them. Have you always been like that? Or do you have the moment still where you fear someone or you're unsure or you have negative opinions when you first meet them? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Totally. I think I think it's really important that I am constantly, um, you know, trying to reflect and be self-aware. And I say trying because I am imperfect about what stigmas do I still hold? What attitudes do I have that are closed minded or closed off? And it takes intentional reflection and work and often uncomfortable situations to uncover those. Um, but like, for example, um, I was doing some reading about changes in social stigma and attitudes over time. And like one of the areas that I'm actively working on, you know, reading thinkers and exposing myself to ideas is um, like uh, stigma about size and weight is very prevalent in our society. People who are heavier are often yeah. discriminated against. And when I kind of sat down and reflected and I said, what are my attitudes? You know, my conscious attitude is like, why would I ever judge someone based on that? That's not a moral thing. It has nothing to do with competence. Yeah. But if I sit back and reflect, what are my unconscious associations? They're maybe not as in line with my conscious values as I would think. And so what can I do yeah. to take ownership over that and begin to unearth some of the stigma that I've been taught? So I think that comes back to exposure as well, because there's a judgment, there's a judgment in my head. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why am I doing that? But because I have less exposure, mm -hmm. I have these moments of judgment and mm -hmm. I catch myself doing it. And I'm like, stop doing that. Like, uh, but like, maybe that's the same with weight and beauty and mm -hmm. uh, boys versus girls. And and I think what you're speaking to or the broader point there is that that exposure is really helpful but in order to keep you know ourselves in line with our integrity and values requires constant and consistent work it doesn't need to be difficult but it is real and it does require effort you know like i could easily like i could take two tacks to this i could say oh there's more work I have to put in to be the kind of person I want to be. Or yeah. I could take the attitude of, wow, I have an incredible opportunity to learn more about myself and society and find a way to be more myself. Right. And that's just a mindset shift for the exact same actions required. But again, there is never going to be an end point for me if I say I want to be an inclusive and thoughtful and accepting person. There's probably always going to be a layer of stuff I have to unearth and, and move on from my yeah. myself. But at the end of the day, 
it can be an interesting, exciting, fulfilling process to do. This doesn't have to be work. Yeah. So in summary, what what would you sort of pick out three things from what we've talked about of what people can learn? I think um, the biggest thing is it's easy to get caught in sort of the rhetoric around diversity, equity, inclusion. But at the end of the day, it's really about work to make sure that everyone is treated fairly and well. That's it. That's all it is. Um, I would say number two is this does not happen by accident. The world is unfair, inequitable, and discriminatory. And so the status quo is not great. We have to put intentional effort into changing it. And then the third thing I would say is that it requires each of us to go on our own journeys and to do that with both curiosity and non-judgment. And I think that each of us have a starting place, um, but we can each take one step forward all the time. Yeah, and uh, what about your 2024? What's, what, what does it look like for you? My 2024, um, my word for this year, I always like pick a word as a theme, is stability. Um, so I migrated to Sydney in July of last year with my family. Okay. Um, and so this year, we are just like looking forward to like putting down some roots. Um, we joked, we're like, nothing exciting in 2024, which <laughs> isn't exactly true. We're like getting married and things like that. So there's fun stuff happening. But I think stability and for me, just really trying to support the people around me and create community and connection. Like if I nail that by the end of 2024, I'll feel really good about it. And do you have any events coming up or? Um, my big event or the thing I'm really focused on right now is um, in uh, mid-January, Culture Amp is putting out our 2023 Equitable Design and Impact Report. Yeah. Um, so that'll be coming out um, mid-month. And it is a look back of the whole year of our equity and inclusion, sustainability and social impact work. So hundreds of people have been working on this. Then we finally get to show a little bit of our work. And who would be interested in um, who you... I think anyone who's interested in businesses doing good. I think there's so many companies who leaders have the right intention, but aren't necessarily quite sure about what steps to take. And so one of the reasons that we share so much of our work is because we hope that one, you can learn from what's worked for us, but also hopefully you can avoid the mistakes that we've made so you can do yeah. something more productive. So there are a million things that I have not even <laughs> touched or covered. Um, the, yeah, there's so much more. So like, hopefully we get to talk again and, yeah, absolutely. and deep dive more. But thank you so much for uh, helping, talking, idea sharing, coming up with a new question. Yeah. And uh, have a great 2024. Thank, thank you. you so much. I've been so happy to be here. We'll absolutely have to talk again. Beautiful. Thanks, Aubrey. 